Thank you all. All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. This is where we're going to be this morning. Um, so, the last, I guess, four weeks, as we've gone through Colossians uh, 2, 6 through 15, we've looked at the idea of faith. So first we saw the basis of our faith and how our faith is built on Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for us. And we saw the sufficiency of our faith, that our faith in Christ, it is enough, is enough for our salvation, is enough to define kind of who we are and how we live, is that it is sufficient that we don't need anything more than Christ to define our salvation, to define our morality, to define uh, where we stand. And then we saw the, um, what our faith produces. And that's what we saw last week where we talked about uh, the changed life that, that comes with Christ. That He has conquered our sin, forgiven our trespasses, the, the effect of our faith. Well, this morning what Paul does is he takes that idea that he's been talking about and then he throws in, in the beginning of chapter or verse 16, he throws in the word therefore. Now, whenever we see the word therefore, we understand that's a point that Paul is about to build off of or the author is about to build off of what they just said. So he says all of this about faith and then he says therefore, because of this is what we understand about faith, he's then going to present to them an enemy of that faith. And that enemy is legalism. And legalism is the idea that Paul is about to attack and deal with. And it's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we go forward, let's go ahead and set ourselves a definition of legalism. Legalism is the religion of human achievement. Legalism is basically Christ plus human works or Christ plus our works. Legalism makes the conformity to man-made rules the measure of our spirituality. As Christians, there, are, there is a standard that we are to live to. As Christians, God has set a standard in His Word, and it is to impact who we are and how we live our life. Everything that God says in His Word is to be our, our goal, our aim, our measuring stick on who we are and how we live. And so when, when Jesus says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, obeying God's word is part of loving him. But one thing that, that mankind has been really good at doing ever since the Old Testament is taking what God has said and then adding to that. And not even necessarily adding like a bunch of false truth or anything wrong about God or Jesus, but we, we tend to add a lot more rules. And so we say if you're really going to be spiritual, if you're really going to love Jesus, then yeah, you've got to do what the Bible says, but you've also got to do all this other stuff, all these other rules that we've kind of created on our own. And so as Paul deals this morning with this idea of legalism, this is what he's dealing with. So as he's talking about obedience, as he's talking about following God, he's not saying, let's get rid of the stuff that God has said or let's ignore that. What he is saying is, why would you add to what God has already given you? If God has said something, if God has given it to us, then that means it's authoritative. It's from God. Why would we take something man-made when we can't earn our way to God or make our way to God on our own and try to raise that to the level of God. 
So here in, in churches, I've grown up in church, so I've seen a lot of this. Here's some of the ways. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's some of the ways that we have kind of created our sense of legalism or expressed our legalism in the church with what we wear. I've been at churches where men wore suits, women wore dresses, and if you did not wear that, then there was something wrong with you spiritually. At least that was the common uh, thought when the Bible mentions nothing about that. So that's a legalistic idea. What we listen to. Uh, you know, there are some people who say uh, you should only listen to uh, Caleb all the time or Christian music all the time. And if you listen to anything outside of what they play on Caleb, then you are a bad Christian. I grew up with people in, in, in youth group, and when I was in the college ministry at the church that I grew up in, that literally if someone was talking about Anything other than Christian music they played on Caleb, they thought that they were a negative Christian or a bad Christian. Same with TV. If they watched anything that wasn't on the Disney Channel, and I guess that made it somehow good, then they were a, a bad Christian. And so setting up any kind of rules like that, kind of to the extreme, we also see it in the worship that we use. People say, well, you only can do uh, hymns. If you do anything other than hymns, then, then somehow that impacts your spirituality. I was at a church once and I, told, I had a lady tell me that if churches put words up on the screen, that that was sin and that was uh, people trying to control the church or control the members. And that is legalism. That's taking man-made rules and trying to say our spirituality or our relationship with Jesus is based on these rules that have no grounding uh, in Scripture. Same with how many times we come to church uh, or how many church services we have. We've got three services. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us thou must have three services to be a good church. We do it because one, it's just kind of that's how it's, it's traditionally been done. Two, there's, there's value and there's benefit in meeting together multiple times to celebrate, to worship, to be around God's Word. Uh, but that does not define our spirituality by how many church services we have. And so legalism is the enemy of the freedom that God has given us in Christ. Because what legalism does is Christ has set us free from the law. If you ever want to read about this, read the book of Galatians. This is one of the main ideas or one of the main themes that is presented in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, they had false teachers come in and kind of carry this idea. Look, you've got to be a Christian, but you've also kind of got to be a Jew too. You've got to hold to all the rules, all the, the religious practices, all the ceremonies, all the uh, celebrations of the Jewish religion to be a Christian. And they try to kind of combine the two. And Paul writes Galatians in part to say, no, Jesus Christ has rescued us, has freed us from this idea of trying to earn something through religious activity. He has lifted that boulder. He has lifted that burden off of our shoulders. And He has brought us to Himself through grace, through His death, through Him loving us, through Him initiating the relationship. Uh, not through who we are or what we can do, but through Him and what He has done for us. And so legalism kind of tries to negate that freedom. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
What that means is righteousness is having a right standing before God. Jesus Christ means that the law does not provide us that righteousness. Jesus provides us that righteousness so that as God looks at me, because I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus, He doesn't see my works and say, all right, Cam's done enough. He's right now. No, I could never do that. God looks at me and He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ standing in front of me or clothing me so that my righteousness is not based on who I am, how good I am, what rules I do or do not follow. My righteousness before God is based solely on Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, or stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Legalism, when we add all of these rules to our life that God did not intend, intend for us to add, it creates another yoke of slavery. It kind of adds more pressure. Well, uh, I didn't wear the right clothes, or I didn't do the right thing, or I didn't do this, and I didn't do this. And instead of trusting in God's grace, instead of trusting in what Jesus did, instead of responding out of love and thankfulness for who God is, we try to make all these rules, and it ends up just kind of weighing us down. So, let's look at our passage today. We'll look at Colossians 2, 16 through 23. We'll pray, and then we're going to kind of make our way back through the passage. All right, so starting in verse 16 of Colossians 2, it says this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and what he has done. And Father God, I pray this morning, God, as we look at your word, as we look at this passage, God, that you could... um, Father God, encourage those who do not know you, Father God, to know that Jesus Christ has paid a price to provide for them a way to you that they could not, that we cannot do on our own. Do on our own. And Father God, for those who do know you, God, that you would remind us this morning that yes, we are to love you and obey you, but Father God, we don't need to add things that you have not said to do. And so Father God, let us live under grace and not under the law. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so kind of an overview is we see that we battle legalism both externally and internally. 
In verses 16 through 19, he talks about, therefore, don't let other people judge you or don't let other people disqualify you based on a couple of different things. And we'll look at that in a second. And so we, there's kind of a, a, a legalism that kind of comes externally, that sometimes other people try to place rules on us and they say, well, you know what? If you don't do A, B, and C, then you're not really very spiritual. Secondly, we also face in, uh, um, legalism internally. There are times where we can kind of create rules on ourselves, and we say, you know what? I love Jesus, so if I follow all these extra rules that I've made up, then this means that I'll be uh, sinless or, or, or not sin as much. And we try to kind of create our own little bubble to live in to kind of protect us instead of trusting in Christ as much. So that's kind of where we're going this morning, is looking at the external and the internal aspects of legalism. So externally, legalism is an exaltation of rules and experience over Christ. So let's go to verse 16. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So this idea of the food, the drink, regard to festival, new moon, Sabbath... The Jews held, or the the Jewish religion, held all of these things as very important. These were their times to worship God. These were their times to to worship at specific moments on the Sabbath. These were their times to offer up uh, specific sacrifices and offerings before God for the atonement of sin. This was kind of some of the big moments that their religion was based around. And so Paul is writing, he says, look, don't let people pass judgment on you in regards to these these festivals and these celebrations, when you meet, how you worship, uh, in the sense of following the Jewish law or following the Jewish custom. And he says, he gives them a reason why. Verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance... The substance belongs to Christ. Now, we've talked about this a lot before, but the Old Testament, the Old Testament is is building towards Jesus Christ. So when we see the the covenants given, they're, they're, they're... fulfilled in Christ, when we see the sacrificial system given uh, about the the lambs being sacrificed, the the blood being spilt, that points us towards the, the lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. That points us to Jesus. When we see the, the Passover and the, 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 um, the Israelites leaving Egypt because of the blood on the doorpost, that's a picture, once again, that is fulfilled in Jesus. It is His blood that causes death to pass over us because He has paid the penalty of our sin. So Paul says all of these different things that the Israelites are doing, they are all fulfilled in Christ. So much so that he calls these things shadows, which means they kind of give you the outline, but the real image, the real substance is found in Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we're walking uh, outside or even walking down uh, somewhere in the house and my shadow is casting on the floor, my kids run up on the shadow and they say, hey, I'm walking on you or I'm standing on you or I'm jumping on you, whatever they're doing on my shadow. Now, are they really doing that to me? No. The shadow is not me. The shadow is not the truth. The shadow is, is simply a, a, an image. It's simply something that shows that truth is there or something real is there. The shadow is not real. The shadow just tells me that something real is there. 
So Paul says all these kind of religious activities that are not prescribed by God in His Word, but man-made or, or, or taken that have really kind of lost their value now that Christ has come, he says all of that stuff has no real substance behind it because that substance is found in Jesus Christ. He's the one who came. He's the one who died. He's the one who rose again. He's the one who ascended into heaven that we might have new life. He is the one that our faith is built on, based on. It is His work that gives us the effect of faith of conquering sin. It is Jesus, who He is and what He has done, that our faith is built on, not on religious activities. Now, we participate in religious activities. We, we come to church. We read our Bible. We pray. We do these things because we love God. We do these things because we understand God loved me enough that He sent His Son to die for me. And because Jesus gave me the greatest gift ever, I want to give my life back to Him. I want to worship Him with other Christians. I want to learn more about Him. I want to be closer to Him. And I understand that God has given me the church to do that. That God has given me His Word. That God has given us prayer as an opportunity to draw closer to Him. So because of what Jesus has done, I do these things to draw closer to Him. But then I don't take a bunch of other stuff and add it to it and say all this other stuff is going to get me closer to Jesus. Because that's not how it is designed. These things that are outside the realm of Scripture are shadows with the substance being Christ. So when people try to add different rules, some of the stuff that we looked at, you've got to wear suits, you've got to sing this kind of song, you've got to meet this many times. When people add these different rules and say, look, if you're going to love God, then you've got to do all of this other stuff. That stuff has its purpose or it has its value, but not in the sense of defining our spirituality. That is found in Christ. All right, so it's not just rules, but it's also um, experience. Look at verse 18. It says, let no one disqualify you. That's kind of like the idea of an umpire or a referee telling you that you've committed a a foul or you've kind of broken the rules and so you're no longer allowed to play the game. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Uh, That is some kind of uh, abuse of the body or starvation or beating or whatever else uh, in order to somehow try to move us to a different spiritual plane. Um, Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. There are... There are those different denominations that are built on experience more than they are built on Jesus Christ. They are built on the the activity. They are built on the emotion. They are built on uh, having this grand emotional response uh, more than they are built on the truth of Jesus Christ. And they would argue or they would say that if you don't have this experience that it's somehow, this kind of hyper-spiritual experience that it somehow negates your salvation or negates your spirituality. 
There are some who would say that uh, salvation happens in two parts. Uh, You're saved when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, but then later on you get the Holy Spirit, and that's when you get uh, signs of tongues and all this other kind of hyper-charismatic stuff, which the Bible just does not say. The Bible tells us that we are sealed at salvation with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal that binds our faith, that, that binds our salvation. He does not come later, but he comes when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. So those who would say that, look, you've got to have this this hyper-spiritual experience for your spirituality to be valid, what Paul is saying is don't let them disqualify you because that's not real. That's not true. I had a buddy who went to a a Christian college, and um, he he said it was, I guess his first month there, uh, he was there to study uh, worship, um, and one of the girls from his class said, hey, we're going to be having a a prayer meeting or or, or kind of a time just to kind of pray and worship together if you want to come, and so he said, hey, that's great, that'll be fun, here's a cute girl, ask me, I'm going to go do this, and he says they walk up, and they're all kind of more or less chanting uh, and singing, and they're talking about seeing this gold dust falling from the sky. And he's like looking around. He doesn't see anything. And he's like, all right, this is, I'm going somewhere else. This isn't for me. And there's really whole denominations built around seeing gold dust or feathers or, or bright lights at all the times. And if you don't have these wild experiences, that it somehow negates your spirituality. And Paul says that's not true. Don't let people get caught up in visions and worship of angels and all this hyper-spiritual activity because it does no value. He goes on to say in verse 19, He says, what they do is they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And so if it's not legalism, where does true spiritual growth come from? He tells us that spiritual growth and maturity comes from a loving, submitted, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In 19, he says, where he talks about holding fast to the head, the head is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And so holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, we are the body, each each people, each uh, serving a different part, is nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments and it grows with the growth it is from God. Our spirituality is not defined by what rules we follow. Our spirituality is not defined by what experiences we have. Our spirituality, our growth, and our spiritual maturity is defined by us clinging to Jesus Christ, holding fast to the head, the head that nourishes us, that feeds us, that empowers us and strengthens us, and the head that binds us together as the body, brings us unity. We are not unified because um, someone's had one experience and someone's had another experience. We are unified because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so we do not grow spiritually by um, 
creating more rules. And we do not grow spiritually by trying to manufacturing and saying, okay, I've created this kind of checklist of 50 things that I've got to do each day. If I do all 50 things, if I listen to the right music, if I wear the right clothes, if I uh, post the right things on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then I am spiritual. And then God loves me. And then I'm spiritually mature. No, what Paul is saying is spiritual maturity doesn't come by creating lists and rules. Spirituality does not come by trying to fabricate these crazy wild experiences. Spirituality comes when we trust who Jesus is and we love Him for what He has done for us. And then because we love Him, that changes who we are, how we live, how we act, how we think, what we value, not by us creating a list of things to do, but by us knowing more of who Jesus is and trusting who He is. Growth comes when we love Christ more than we love our sin. Growth comes when we love Christ more than any other of our other wants. Growth comes when we lean on Christ during times of hurt and sadness. Growth comes when we learn to see Christ for who He is and we trust Him more than we trust ourselves. That is spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is centered around the head who nourishes us and binds us together. Spiritual growth is centered not around a list of rules, not around a bunch of experiences, but around Jesus Christ. And do we know Him? Do we love Him? And do we follow Him? Not because we're trying to earn something or impress others, but we follow Him because... Because He's worthy. We follow Him because He's loved us first and we love Him in return. Okay, that's external. we got 10 minutes to cover internal. All right, internally. I can do it. Y'all don't, y'all don't doubt me. Uh, internally, legalism is the submission of rules, is a submission to rules, excuse me, to rules attempting to defeat sin by ourselves. All right, so in verses 16 through 19, he says, Don't let others disqualify you or judge you. Verse 20, he says this, If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, meaning if you've trusted Jesus for your salvation, you're not trusting your works, you're not trusting uh, your own ability, you're trusting Jesus, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So basically, the idea here that he's carrying on, this idea of asceticism, is this idea that you somehow punish the body uh, in order to fight against sin. And so the idea that he's carrying here about do not touch, do not, um, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste... Um, it's kind of going back to some of the, the Jewish dietary laws. They had rules of you can eat this and you can eat that. And God had given them to that for a number of reasons. But once Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven, uh, God sent a vision to Paul or to Peter, excuse me, to Peter saying, look, basically eat anything you want. Any kind of animal. Uh, it might have been uh, off the table at one time. Now it's on the table. Go have you a cheeseburger. Go have you some bacon. You can eat that stuff now. It's no longer off off the table. But there were some who still took that and said, look, if I can somehow 
kind of deny my natural cravings for a bacon burger, then that will somehow give me a bit the ability to also to deny sin or to deny temptation. And so if I can kind of um, say no to all of this stuff, that maybe it's good, maybe as God has said aloud, but if I can, can kind of say no to all this other stuff that I like that is good, then that'll help me say no to sin. So I'll starve myself because if I can say no to my stomach, then surely I can say no to my lust or to my greed or to my pride. And so Paul talks about that, and he goes on to verse 23 that says that has the appearance of wisdom, but it has no value or it has no strength. And we'll get to 23 in a second. Because what I want us to see is for us, it's typically not hey, I'm going to not eat certain foods, and that'll help me spiritually. What we tend to do in modern Christianity is we kind of create this bubble around ourselves. And in this kind of bubble, we say, I'm going to keep all of the bad stuff out. I won't listen to certain types of music. I won't watch TV and movies. I won't uh, listen to the radio. Uh, the only book I'll, uh, uh, I'll read, my Bible, and then uh, James Dobson books. Uh, I won't engage with the rest of the world. And if I kind of surround myself in this kind of spiritual bubble where I have no impact or no influence or no dealings with the world or with people around me, if I kind of create this bubble, then that will protect me from sin. And that means that I won't sin as much because I've kind of got my my Jesus bubble on. And there's a few things wrong with that. One, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible tells us that we're strangers and aliens in the world, but we still have to live in this world and we still have to, uh, we still interact with other people. We still interact with our culture. Yes, we have different guidelines, but we're not to, to segregate ourselves from the rest of the world. But also it, it forgets the fact that Sin does not begin externally, but sin begins internally. James chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 says this, But each of you, or each person, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James said sin comes from not what is external, not from the bad stuff in the world, but sin comes from right here. Sin comes from my heart. When I desire something that God has called wrong, when, when sin tempts me and it kind of entices within me, uh, it entices and kind of grabs me and grabs my attention and, and grabs my desire, and I give over to that, that's where sin comes from. Not from what is without, but from what is within. Sure, what's around us can entice us, it can tempt us, but it becomes sin when it happens in my heart. So if we kind of give ourselves this kind of bubble to protect us from the rest of the world, it does nothing to fix our sin problem because sin is an internal issue that expresses itself externally. So one, it forgets that idea. But two, what it ends up doing is you judge other people because they don't follow kind of your made-up list of rules. They don't live in your little uh, bubble, so therefore they are not good. They are bad. They are wrong. I've got a friend who used to be a youth pastor and uh, he was at a relatively large church. They ran around 1,200 on Sunday morning. And he had a group of parents. Uh, they homeschooled their kids. There's nothing wrong with that. They homeschooled their kids. 
And they would not let their kids come to or participate in any of the, the youth activities at church. They couldn't go on Wednesday night. They couldn't go to Sunday school uh, with the other students their age. And the reasoning was, is that those kids go to public school. Those kids aren't as good as my kids. If my kids are around them, then my kids are going to be bad like they are. And so it creates this idea of, hey, I'm better than you. I'm more moral than you. None of which God has called us to do. God has called us to live in grace, to show each other grace. When someone wrongs us, to forgive them. When we wrong others, they are to forgive us. That we live in the sphere of grace, not the law. And so with Paul talking about this, this idea of asceticism, this idea of trying to... uh, control your sin by doing a whole bunch of other stuff, Paul goes on to say that this has no value. In verse 23, he closes this section by saying, these have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. They look good and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism looks pious and it looks wise, but it is powerless. Setting up your own list of rules is not enough to keep you from sinning, to keep me from sinning. Kind of getting rid of every music and every movie and every TV show and every book and kind of sitting alone in your house with a candle and the Bible is not enough to just uh, eradicate sin from your life. By separating yourself from everyone else and living as some kind of spiritual hermit, that is not enough. It might look super pious. It might look like the monks. The monks would separate themselves from everyone else and they would live in silence and they would only wear robes and they would eat the worst food and they would spend all day sitting there copying the Bible over and over and over again. Guess what? None of that got them salvation. None of that brought them victory over sin. The only place victory over sin comes from is Jesus Christ. Paul says all that other stuff is powerless. It doesn't have power over sin. It doesn't have power over temptation. What has power over sin and temptation is Jesus. Jesus. James chapter 7 verse or James chapter 4 verses 7 through 10 says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, repent of your sins and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sin is not created by rules or by separating yourself or by going through different experiences. Sin is conquered when we submit ourselves to God. When we go to God and we say, God, here I am. Here are my flaws. Here are my faults. Here are my sins. Here are the temptations I typically give over to. Here's when I get angry. Here's when I get upset. Here's when I blow up at my family. Here's when I'm greedy. Here's when I'm selfish. Here's when I'm lustful. Here's when I'm prideful. Here I am, God. I need you to help me. I need you to give me victory over my temptations. I need you to give me victory over my sins. And God, when I fall flat on my face, I need you to forgive me multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. Victory over sin is not found by creating lists. Victory over sin is found by humbling ourselves before God, saying, God, I am weak. I need you. 
Romans 6, 7 says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And then Romans 6, 10 through 11 says, For the death he died, to, he died to sin. That's Jesus once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is conquered when we humble ourselves before God and we recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has set us free from sin. Meaning, sin does not have any power over my life unless I give it that power. Temptation has no dominion in my life unless I give it the throne in my life. God is to sit on the throne and I'm to humbly come before Him and say, God, hear my weaknesses. I need your strength. And understand that Jesus has died to give us that freedom. He's died to give us that strength. He's died to give us that victory. That we are not to try to do this on our own, in our own power, in our own ability by making our rules or creating experiences or creating this bubble around ourselves. We find victory over sin not through legalism, but by humility, by trusting in who Jesus is and what He has done for us and daily, humbly going before God and saying, God, I need your help because if I don't, I'm going to give in. I need your strength. I need your power. I need your grace. I need you. Legalism can do none of that. The law can do none of that. It cannot create salvation. We cannot be so good that we can earn our salvation. And it cannot create sanctification. We cannot do enough that it makes us more spiritual. We become spiritually mature when we love God, we trust what He has done for us through Jesus Christ, and we humble ourselves before Him, being dependent on the head, the one who nourishes us, that we might find life and strength and hope in Him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You now and thank You for this time that You've given us. Father God, I pray right now that You would... Father God, I recognize how easy it is to to make the list. I know how easy it is to think that if I just kind of separate myself from everyone else or if I have my daily checklist, if I do these things and everything is going to be all right. But Father God, help us all remember, God, that it's not our strength. It's not our abilities, Father God. It is you. And Father God, we have to do maybe one of the hardest things it is. That's daily to humble ourselves before you and say, God, I'm weak. But you love me anyways and you've promised me strength. Father God, let us be humble before you, not not creating our own list of rules or our own spiritual bubbles around ourselves. But Father God, help us to trust in the work that you have done for us through Christ. Help us to trust in the freedom that you offer us and the power that you offer us. And Father God, let us lean on you and not on ourselves. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.